Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michael Gaben joins Chief U.S. Economist at Barclays and, of course, his tour of duty at the International Monetary Fund is noted. Michael, I want to talk about the second derivative of inflation, the rate of change of the rate of change that we're all living. It's personified by my favorite indicator, the Cleveland median is out 2.8 standard deviations. It's on the edge of we've never seen this. What kind of report will we never see in 12 minutes? Well, it could be a really interesting part of this report is we all expect the headline to be driven by energy, gas, food prices, everything that we've been discussing and you've been discussing on, on your show in recent weeks. What we will be looking for underneath that is any indication that actually goods prices are starting to roll over. There are signs used car prices could be falling in the next months ahead and even new car prices this month we think might be falling. So we could see a bit of a, a dichotomy here. The, the anticipated decline in goods prices that we've all been waiting for right. and perhaps might show up a teeny bit in this report, but would be completely overwhelmed by, of course, what we, we would be seeing in, at the headline level from, from energy and gas. Whether it's Dallas trimmed or Cleveland median, let's go inside those trims. What inside the report will give you the best indication of America's inflation trend? Uh, wow, that's a, I mean, that's, uh, I would say, I would point to is, is service, we, we all expect at some point for goods prices to moderate. So the underlying trend, we still think in the long run will be driven by the services component, so shelter, rent, owner's equivalent rent, if we, as we have been discussing for some time, a lot of upward pressure there as well. So underlying inflation over the long run in the U.S. is about services. It's less about energy. It's less about goods. So that if you if you can strip things away and think of, well, inflation should be moving lower over time, where might it settle in? then you'd want to focus on services. The former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley, came on this program, Mike, a number of weeks ago. In fact, it was a few months ago. And he said the Fed forecasts were in fantasy land. This is the forecast for growth in 22, 4 percent. The core PCE, 2.7%. Is that fancy land? Uh, well, the, the Fed's forecasts always assume policy works and you get an optimal outcome, which in this case is a soft landing. I, I've been thinking their growth forecasts to me have been too optimistic. Uh, when they were at four, we were at, at two nine, and, and now we're, we're at two six. Um, I think you mentioned uh, you, you were on with my good friend Seth Carpenter a few a few segments ago. They've been revising their growth lower in the U.S. They're down 40 basis points, he said. So I, that 4% number has to come down a lot uh, for a variety of reasons. And yes, they've got to bring that inflation number higher just because of where spot inflation is. I still think the outlook will, will be a Goldilocks soft landing forecast. The Fed has to kind of forecast that. Uh, but yes, I think some reckoning here in the in the data will, will mean big changes in, in their outlook. Mike, I want to sit on that point that you made. This assumes that their policy recalibrations will work. Do you think that that is in question? Yes, I, I do. And that's it's not necessarily a direct criticism of the Fed. I, I would just say that, you know, the Fed, as, as you all know, has focuses on things like core and trim means. And it's a recognition that there are some prices 
that are set in markets that are largely beyond their control. And, and we've been getting movements in, in those prices recently, and we're all constantly revising our forecasts higher and saying, oh yes, the peak is coming, it's this month, it's getting pushed out. So yes, I, I think the, the ability for central banks to control inflation in this environment without generating a substantial contraction in demand is certainly a question. And Mike, you talked about they're assuming, and they kind of have to, this Goldilocks soft landing kind of outlook. From your perspective, given the speed that we have seen of the increase in CPI and the increase in some of these inflationary inputs, do you think that a soft landing is possible at all? I do think it's possible, and I would still say it's probable, but I think the odds of that come, come down. And in terms of, you, you mentioned the speed of the move in inflation, or sorry, in the move of prices, and in this case, energy, that, that is important. Some of the work that we've done suggests it is more about the speed of the move in oil prices than the level. Uh, and, and what tends to happen in cases where, where gasoline prices shoot higher in, in a very short period of time, consumers don't know what to do, so they pause. And what they do is they stop buying durables. So durables is the most sensitive part of consumer spending to changes in oil prices. And if you look at history, it'll, it'll say when, when the three-month annualized change in CPI exceeds 9%, we, we tend to get major pullbacks in durable spending. That happened, for example, in the 1990 Gulf War, obviously echoes of that in the current situation and following Hurricane Katrina. So major disruptions to oil, a, sh a sharp rise in energy prices, consumers tend to pull back discreetly on, on durables purchases. ECB President Christine Lagarde just walked into the room for her opening statement. Before we turn to her for her forecasts and the Q&A session at the ECB, Mike Gapen, we have to come to you, sir, from Barclays. You've had a bit of time to pour through this one. Your takeaway? Well, it's probably the first time that we've talked in two years where we got a forecast spot on. So, um, you know, I guess we're, we're happy about that. Uh, but look, I, I think your, your main point was, look, this is a report that came in before the recent conflict. So the contours were as we had expected. We, we were looking for gas to be up 7%, so very much in line uh, with, my, with what Michael had reported there. Food prices up, up strongly, right? This is where the, the new impulse is, is coming from. So for the moment, we've got a little reprieve from goods prices. Let's see if that continues. If it does, it'll provide some offset from headline inflation, but yeah. inflation's not likely to roll over and, and begin to come down uh, for, for several more months here. Uh, so I think this kind of sets the stage for where we are now. And we need to see how long this conflict plays out and how disruptive the sanctions regime actually is. Michael Gapin, honestly, the reaction in markets is not that significant. People were prepared for this because you and others mm -hmm. got it spot on. How much does that tell you about how much or how little people are pricing in 7.9% given where yields are? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult situation to be a, a bond trader uh, at the moment. So I, I think where yields are is, is consistent with, again, medium-term expectations that this is going to uh, come, that inflation will come down and be back at levels that, that we're more comfortable with. That's obviously a bet that the market is making. And, and one of the reasons they're doing that is because of what the ECB said this morning and the reaction in bond yields in Europe, what the Fed has been saying. Right. It's like, yes, inflation is high, but we will do what we need to do to bring that down. And that's why long end yields are right. where they are. Michael Gapin, I have hinged on this report for, I'm going to say, four, if not six weeks. How does this change the question you would give Chairman Powell on March 16th? 
I, I think the, the question I would give him is, is, is beyond this. I, I think the question I would give him is about how do, you, how do you conduct monetary policy in an environment where the inflation that you're getting is largely beyond your control and, and uncertainty is, has been rising, right? And, and I think the answer to that is, you know, tread carefully, move. I think sitting on the sideline isn't an option. I think they have to move. But when you're in an environment when you don't know exactly what your policy move is going to bring in terms of a response from markets, you have to go cautiously. Mike Apen of Barclays. The team here at Bloomberg putting tremendous effort to get you the right voices out of Europe on what is happening at the moment. No one is doing that better than Maria Tadeo. Let's catch up with Maria right now. Good morning, Maria. Good morning, Jonathan. I'm very happy to say I'm joined by the Prime Minister of Estonia, Prime Minister Kallas. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course, you have been incredibly outspoken about the Russian threat. You said it from the beginning. This is a real issue in Europe. Of course, now we see there's a war extending now for 14 days. Today, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, acting as if nothing was happening. How can you engage with a Russia that seems to be completely oblivious to what's happening? Uh, you can't. Uh, that's, uh, that's the thing. They don't have any diplomatic will to you know find a solution uh, they are building this narrative uh, that they are selling back home in in Russia uh, that you know the West is attacking you know there are biological weapons I mean this is now the third story that they are trying to sell to their people to uh, you know say why are we doing this why are we attacking our Slavic brothers and it's very hard to explain really and you see Slavic uh, brothers because Ukraine. that's, a, that's a, but that's also a very important point here, of course, is the culture uh, that is shared by, by Eastern Europeans. But I wonder, when Sergei Lavrov says, we're not here to talk about a ceasefire, this was not the goal, and the Ukrainian Prime Minister hints, it's Vladimir Putin that makes the decisions here, and he does not want to meet with Zelensky. How can you have a diplomatic way forward here? Um, I don't think that they have the political will to have a diplomatic way uh, forward. I mean, they want to cause as much uh, damage as possible. Um, it seems to me that Putin, in poker terms, has gone all in. So he either wins or he loses. And I think it's it's up to everybody to make sure uh, that Putin doesn't win this war. And when you say that Putin doesn't win the war, what does that mean? That that means that uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians uh, should win this war, which means that uh, we shouldn't give in. We should uh, help Ukraine every way we can, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, military aid, uh, political support, uh, so that uh, Ukraine would uh, be able to defend its country. And there's a line of thought, you know very well in Europe, that says it's best not to put Vladimir Putin in the corner because that makes him dangerous. Is that a mistake? But, um, you know, we haven't put him in the corner, but he has still done everything that we are seeing right now. And it's heartbreaking to see uh, what he's doing. Uh, if we look at the bigger picture, he has been planning this for for quite some time. I mean, uh, in all over the world, I mean, creating or, or increasing its its influence, uh, also trying to, you know, cooperate with uh, different countries and, and, and plan carefully this uh, this attack as well and also 
you know, having tests like Crimea, Donbas, um, that went quite peacefully. So probably he had a thought that it's going to go uh, easy uh, overall Ukraine as well. But it's it's not because Ukrainians are uh, fighting for their country. And, and these people are fighting like hell and have been doing this uh, for two weeks. But I wonder, when you look at what Vladimir Putin is doing right now, is this an aspiration to return to the old Soviet Union? We know that he said the end of the USSR was the biggest tragedy ever in Russia. Is it about going back to the USSR? He has been very open about his imperialistic dreams. Uh, so, uh, I mean, years already uh, talking about these things. Um, so, so, and also being very open about not recognizing Ukraine as an independent country. So I think we should take uh, him for his words, uh, what his uh, thoughts and plans are. But it's also up to us to make sure that he doesn't execute those plans. And uh, of course, I want to ask you about NATO. Your country belongs to NATO, of course, also the European Union. When it comes to NATO, are we going to see from now on an operation that is bigger in number, longer in time, more weapons? Is this a collaboration that will see NATO becoming stronger? Uh, yes, I think so, uh, because so far we have had this uh, NATO's deterrence posture, but now we are moving to the defense plan, which means that uh, you know there are different capabilities, how these things work together, how we co cooperate with different uh, different troops uh, on different soils, uh, uh, different countries. So um, this is how NATO should work. I mean, the defense plans, because it's a defense alliance. So more troops on the ground. And of course, Prime Minister, just a final question. We know that today there are two big topics. One, do we include energy in the sanctions? And should Ukraine be part of the European Union? What's your answer to those two questions? I think we have to give hope uh, to Ukraine uh, and, and some really clear political signal that they are part of the European family and they have a way to, uh, to Europe because they are literally fighting for Europe uh, right now. Um, so this, uh, this is, uh, we need to give them some kind of message. Um, what comes to energy, of course we talk uh, about uh, sanctions and, and there is already the fourth package of sanctions on top of it. But what we have to understand that different European countries have different energy dependence. So, so uh, it has two sides. One side is, of course, that we want to hurt the war machine uh, of Putin and, and you know, deprive him of, of, of his income. But the other side is that uh, our public has to support the decisions made as well. So you don't see a full ban on imports coming uh, out of I, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Well, Prime Minister Gallas, thank you so much. As always, appreciated your time here on Bloomberg Television. Jonathan, Tom. Maria, fantastic work, as always. Good to catch up. Maria Tadeo with the Prime Minister of Estonia, Tom, a NATO member which shares a border to the east with Russia. Right now, Peter Truwitz joins us out of the University of Texas in the Combine at LBJ. He is now at the London School of Economics and Professor of International Relations. Peter Truwitz, one of my iconic reads, is Magnum Desai of LSE and the wonderful Marxist Revenge. It is a clarion call of modern capitalism. Here's a guy talking about the shadows of Nazism, denazification, and the rest, hearkening back to the empire, hearkening back to post in USSR, and it's all a shambles. What is Putin's theory this morning? 
Well, Tom, great to be with you. I mean, look, how everyone wants to size up Putin's motivations, and they range from security imperatives, a response to NATO and EU expansion to what you're suggesting here, Russian irredentism, like restoring the glorious Soviet empire. To the autocratic nature of his regime, this guy made a massive miscalculation on two fronts. First, he underestimated Western resolve and unity, the capacity to respond collectively. And secondly, I think he just thought Ukraine was too fractured to respond the way they have responded. And it's just, you know, he's, I mean, it's like a shambles in that sense. Does it mean that Russia is going to lose? It's not going to get anything that it wants. He's demonstrating that he's prepared to go where people just, you just don't want to go. Do we? We're alluding to at the top all of these horrific photos and, 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 and pictures. To bring it to America, Peter, do we need a Ulysses Grant right now? Do you see the West with any idea of the sacrifices required to stop this guy? Yeah, I think, I mean, look, the, the West is in a, you're in a difficult position. You're not dealing with an ordinary power. You're dealing with a nuclear power. I mean, this guy's like armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. And so the problem here is to provide sufficient support to the Ukrainians on many different dimensions, but, you know, most immediately on military grounds to be able to let them push back and sustain the war effort but at the same time to avoid things that allow Putin to escalate, that give him an excuse to do it. That's why no-fly zone. That's why the EU will probably be very careful in response, you know, at Versailles today and tomorrow over how to respond to the Ukraine's request for expedited membership into, uh, into, uh, into the EU. Peter, we heard from yesterday, uh, certainly the markets were hoping for some sort of diplomatic solution. There were diplomatic talks. Based on what we have seen, is there any potential diplomatic resolution to this conflict? Do you have any optimism around that? Well, I think, you know, I mean, we're all reading tea leaves. I was not surprised by, and I'm sure you weren't either, by what just uh, the outcome in, in Turkey this morning here. Um, Look, these talks are important because it's a way for each side to get a better sense of the other side's political resolve and importantly, I think, to get clarity on minimal acceptable positions. They all, both sides began with their maximal positions and what I see is change on both fronts. The problem here, as somebody alluded, maybe it was Tom uh, earlier in the before I came on, Lavrov is not really speaking with Putin's confidence. And so that you don't know, you know, exactly anything that he agrees to will be signed off or agreed to uh, at home. But we've seen two things so far. Just let me finish on this point. One is what we're hearing from this talk, these negotiations, but also the negotiations involving the Israeli prime minister is that Putin is no longer looking for regime change, okay, that, you know, the Zelensky government has to go. And on Zelensky's side, what we've heard is that they're willing to accept some form of neutrality in lieu of 
NATO membership. So there's movement on both of those things. The problem here is that both sides are making judgments diplomatically based on what's going on on the ground. Yeah. And that is very opaque. Peter, are the sanctions working quickly enough to exert the pressure on Vladimir Putin and, frankly, on his surrounding circle enough to really uh, boost the prospects of some sort of resolution here? Yeah. So, you know, Lisa, that's like the, I don't know, $64 million question, because, I mean, the thing is, is that what those sanctions require is the Ukrainians to resist. And the longer they can resist for the sanctions to take their bite, then the harder it will be for Putin to convince average Russians and also his selectorate, those very close mm-hmm. to him, that the cost of the war in blood and treasure is worth the effort. But that's the story. It's not going to happen overnight. Peter, uh, Callis of Estonia joined us in the last hour. She and her nation, with all of her heritage of her family, back to World War I. What level of threat are the Baltic states under this morning? There's, I mean, they have reason to be concerned, but the main reason for them to be concerned is not, I think, that Putin is going to pivot militarily. Um, I don't think right now Putin, Putin's got his hands full as it is. The danger is inadvertent escalation, it seems to me, that this thing just tumbles and in ways that none of us can kind of anticipate. And that's why, you know, I think that the Biden team has been smart about the way they're handling this so far. Most of the Europeans have as well. And, you know, but I, I think that this is this is a real present problem for them, that this thing could spin in ways that, you know, I mean, it's just everybody's nightmare scenario. Peter, thank you, sir. As always, fantastic to catch up. Peter Trubowitz there of the London School of Economics. Mark Chandler always has plans. With Bannockburn, their chief market strategist, Mark, I'm going to go big and broad off of your magisterial book where you took the skies and astronomy and the fixedness of the stars into guessing our uncertainties. As Christine Lagarde has said this morning, the uncertainties are unmeasurable. How do we get a cast on the stars right now, given a war in Ukraine? Yeah, what a tough situation we find ourselves in. I think that both the uh, what we're going to see uh, today from Lagarde, but also what we're going to see next week from the Federal Reserve, is that the net impact of this war is to sort of sharpen both blades. One blade is inflation. It's going to raise inflation. And the other blade is slower growth. And that's what we're seeing with the ECB's forecast, higher inflation, weaker growth. We'll probably get the same thing from the Fed. Powell gave us a nice rule of thumb at a recent press conference. Every $10 a barrel rise in oil prices, he says, as a rule of thumb, takes, lifts the uh, CPI by about 0.2 and takes off about 0.1 off of growth. Yeah. So here we are, you know, at with oil at $112, so it's maybe a $30 rally uh, since the war began. Just giving some sense of the ECB headlines, because there were a lot of them. The co- press conference with Christine Lagarde just ended. The ECB forecasts assumes an exchange rate 
of $1.12 in 2022, 2023, and 2024. And this comes as a growing number of uh, prognosticators have said that the euro is going to face a weakening trend if there isn't some sort of hiking action or more hawkish action by the ECB. How much do you think that was the reason behind what seemed to be a pivot in today's announcement? Yeah, I, Lisa, I, I think that uh, we really misunderstand how the ECB thinks of the euro and oil prices. These are not really forecasts. What these are are really the forward rate. And because the interest rate differential is such that I, I think that there's really no predictive value in here, they're just saying that if the euro doesn't really change much from its recent averages, what would this mean for growth? What would this mean for inflation? So I don't take – I think what happened was that initially – the ECB statement made it sound like they were more hawkish, reducing the asset purchases at a faster pace. But once Lagarde got to the microphone, it was very clear that she said this was not the case. It sort of reminds me of what happened at the last press conference with Powell. The statement, bullish, stocks rallied. As soon as Powell began talking, stocks reversed and sold off. What's the safe haven calculus right now, Mark Chandler? Just a final question to you here. The safe haven measurement here, you see Swissy move, gold move, other safe haven equivalents. What's that dynamic that you see right now? Yeah, so I'd say the gold, but I'd say that most interestingly lately has been the strength of the Australian and New Zealand dollars and the Brazilian currency. And this is on as commodity. This is things that can hurt when you drop on your feet. That's what people are buying. And the other thing I'd point out is just the Italian bond spread over German bonds. The Italian bonds have sold off sharply. The yield, the 10-year yield's up 20 basis points. The German yield's up less than five. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Mark Chandler, just huge news flow this morning. Lisa Bramwitz and Mark Chandler there with Bannockburn, I should say. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.